0: Ready to start your holiday shopping? Look no further than the Southern Foodways Alliance. Purchase a membership for a friend and they'll receive a gift card and a subscription to Gravy. That's four issues of great stories that will remind them of your generosity throughout the year. Visit southernfoodways.org and click the yellow support option at the top of the page to purchase a gift membership by December 13th. Is everyone in your family already an SFA member? That is awesome. Shop our online store, also at southernfoodways.org, to purchase some SFA wear for the winter. The dollars you spend will support SFA work.
1: So, fun fact, gravy listeners, that audio you just heard is not actually Arthur Robinson, known to most as Mr. Okra.
2: It was from the New Orleans tourist shop must have, Mr. Okra in your pocket.
0: I'm Mr. Okra. When I'm on break, I use Mr. Okra in your pocket to keep my from running to run me. I'm Mr. Okra and I endorse Mr. Okra in your pocket.
3: The
1: real Mr. Okra drove a pickup truck that was also a produce stand. The truck was painted brightly with peppers, carrots, corn, squash, and of course, Okra.
2: And the song from the souvenir keychain is the ditty Mr. Robinson sang as he arrived in a New Orleans neighborhood to set up shop. Many
1: people know Mr. Okra, his truck, and his songs. What they don't know is that Mr. Okra is one of hundreds of New Orleanian business folk who used music to sell their wares. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm Sarah Camp Milam. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American
3: South.
2: Katie Jane Fernelius takes us to the streets of New Orleans.
3: Earlier this year, I went to see the new movie musical, In the Heights. At the very beginning, just after the main character, Usnavi, steps onto the screen and sings the first few lines of the opening number. A vendor selling piragua, a kind of shaved ice topped with fruity syrup, passes by and sings out to the street.
2: Ice-cold piragua, palcha, china, cherry, strawberry, and just for today, I got my mate. Oh yeah, como...
3: A lot of movies begin this way, a camera panning across a street early morning as a street vendor ambles across, singing about their wares. Take the 1958 film King Creole, starring Elvis Presley. It opens in the French Quarter, and the first sounds you hear are the musical calls of the vendors walking down the street. It's not just movies, though. The Gershwin opera, Porgy and Bess, features a soprano selling strawberries in Charleston, South Carolina.
1: In
3: fact, across the Caribbean, Central and South America, there's a whole genre of music based upon these songs of street vendors. My guess is that singing street vendors are a feature of so many works of art because to include them helps animate the public life of a city. It shows the diverse medley of people and goods and exchanges that compose any city. But seeing street vendors are not just works of fiction. They're also a key part of the history of so many cities. There's this great collection of Louisiana folktales from the early 20th century called Gumbo Ya Ya, which was funded in part by the Works Progress Administration. In it, there's a whole chapter detailing the street vendor cries of New Orleans. According to this book, some vendors sold oysters.
1: Oyster man, oyster man, get your fresh oysters from the oyster man. Bring out your pitcher, bring out your can, get your nice fresh oysters from the oyster man.
3: Others, call gumbo, coffee, and all sorts of other fruits, veggies, fish, and treats.
1: I got water with the melon, red to the rind. And if you don't believe it, just pull down your blind. You get the watermelon and preserve the
3: rind. That was Whitney Mixon, by the way, a fabulous singer who lives here in New Orleans. She took a crack at singing a few of these street vendor cries. Thank you, Whitney. Because of this rich history of street vendor songs, media profiles usually framed Mr. Okra as a relic of a bygone era in the city an era when these vendors used to circulate through New Orleans and sing songs about the wares they were hawking. So when Mr. Okra died in 2018, for many people, the loss represented the death of this long-standing culture of street cries here in New Orleans. Yes, street food still exists here, but the practice of street food vendors each having their own unique calls and songs and jokes about their food, well, that can feel a little harder to find in the city. The Mr. Okra-in-your-pocket souvenir keychain paid homage to the local celebrity. But it also revealed something about the story told about New Orleans, especially to tourists. That story said New Orleans was a city of brass bands, second lines, and parades. A city of blues, funk, and bounce. A city of gumbo, jambalaya, and crawfish boils. A city of jazz fest, essence, and Mardi Gras. A city whose cultural economy seemed to revolve around the labor, traditions, and street life of its communities of color. Their musicians, cooks, dancers, and yes, produce vendors. In fact, Mr. Okra wasn't the only iconic vendor whose likeness and song have been sold to tourists coming to New Orleans. In 1884, More than 1 million visitors descended on New Orleans for the World Industrial and Cotton Centennial, a kind of quasi-World's Fair. At that time, Civic Boosters had been publishing promotional pamphlets, guidebooks, and novels about New Orleans to promote investments from businessmen in the Northeast and Midwest. These materials sold a vision of New Orleans as an exotic locale that also had the trappings of an imaginary Old South with big plantation homes, debutantes, and live oaks dripping with Spanish moss. And in that vision of the South, Black men and women held positions of servitude.
4: You know, if you're a tourist to New Orleans in, say, 1870, 1880, you've been prepped to look out for these signs of the antebellum past. You've read literature, you've read pamphlets, expecting to see this unchanged city. That's
3: Ashley Rose Young, a historian at the Smithsonian who works on their American Food History Project. She researches street food vendors and the public culture of food, among many other things. Ashley says that advertisers played up the Creole culture, that is, the mixed mosaic of Black, indigenous spanish and french culture that was highly present in new orleans there were cookbooks like la cuisine creole that were published in tandem with the 1884 exposition featuring recipes for specialties like gumbo and jambalaya
4: and these were works that were written by white authors Uh, Some of whom I learned weren't even from New Orleans, who aggregated recipes, who appropriated recipes from many Black women and and printed them in these cookbooks and and claimed Creole cuisine and these recipes as their own.
3: Sometimes these cookbooks might reference a Black cook who worked in a household, but rarely would those cooks be given genuine credit for their work. Instead, they were more likely to be framed as mammy-like figures. But as Ashley started looking at all these materials about New Orleans and Creole culture, she found another key character emerging.
4: What I found interesting is time and time again, these references to street vendors and black women street vendors in particular kept popping up in literary tales of New Orleans in historic cookbooks and newspaper articles. There was this almost literary trope of the black French Creole street vendor.
3: In 19th century New Orleans, street vendors came from a diverse set of backgrounds and certainly included free women of color. Some vendors moved through residential neighborhoods. Others set up carts right in Jackson Square in the middle of the French Quarter. And these vendors were seen as an essential part of the scenery by tourists looking for quote-unquote historic New Orleans.
4: So imagine yourself walking into Jackson Square. And as you're walking through Jackson Square, maybe you start to hear the rumbling of carts coming by, heading towards the French market, bringing in fresh produce from surrounding farms. But amongst all that kind of hustle and bustle and and the clinking of carts and the thwack of meat cleavers of the vendors, you know, preparing their, their meat at market, or you might hear a street vendor cry out about, they're selling, you know, and maybe it's a praline vendor.
3: Pralines had been popular treats in New Orleans since at least the 19th century. Made from caramelized sugar and pecans, the delicacy emerged in part from the sugar plantations that helped drive the economy of the port city.
4: And these were Black women vendors who had been selling pralines, these beautiful sugary, dainty candies with pecans um, that they've been doing for generations. And maybe they cry out in a very kind of sweet tone, very melodic, um, almost like a a children's lullaby. And she's sitting there on the steps of Jackson Square with a basket on her knees, you know, dressed in this almost antebellum costume, you know, a dress from 50 years ago.
3: No one seemed quite so picturesque as the praline vendor or the praliniere. Because pralines existed before the Civil War, and their sellers tended to be older women who, in the late 19th century at least, were old enough to have lived during the time of slavery, popular depictions of pralineers portrayed them as dressing in the garb of the antebellum period, and speaking with the vernacular of that time too. And tourists? They ate it up.
4: I need to interact with this person. I need to pay a cent for, for this praline and, 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 and interact with almost a ghost of an, a bygone era. And this is a very, you know, problematic, highly romanticized vision of, of New Orleans as this bastion of antebellum life, as, as a place that went unchanged.
3: To be clear, when we're talking about antebellum, we're talking about the time before the Civil War, the time when slavery was a codified legal institution in the country, the time when most Black New Orleanians occupied a position of servitude. The nostalgia that tourism was selling was a nostalgia for a time of racial control. Antebellum was a convenient euphemism for all of this. But preliniers also used this nostalgic stereotype of the antebellum South to their own advantage
4: the proline vendor that i described in that antebellum garb you know that's not clothing that she was that she would choose to wear in her everyday life again she was a savvy business person she knew that those visitors were looking to engage with the antebellum past they knew they wanted to experience the authentic quote unquote by seeing people in antebellum dress. And so she very skillfully and tactfully wore that dated clothing to attract more customers.
3: Still, the fact that a street vendor and her songs were seen as emblematic of an antebellum South, or at least emblematic of some version of that past, and were used to promote New Orleans to investors who didn't even live in New Orleans, well it brings up a lot of thorny conversations. What is the line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation? Maybe the Pralineers were able to profit off of that image with each individual sale. But did they profit from any of the broader cultural industry built around selling New Orleans, like those cookbooks, travel guides, and fictional accounts? Probably not. But these kinds of dynamics are not just restricted to praliniers in the 19th century. After the break, we'll look at how street life has continued to be a key part of the imagery of New Orleans. And we'll ask what changed, if anything, between the days of the praliniers and the days of Mr. Okra.
1: sell the 1884 world cotton centennial advertisers hawked new orleans as mysterious and exotic and historic when we come back katie jane fernelius explores whether or not that narrative still holds
0: got a cast iron cook on your gifting list this holiday season a piece from lodge cast iron's black Lock line a premier cookware will delight them Named after the original Lodge foundry, Blacklock blends over 125 years of heritage with a seasoned surface and lightweight design. Whether a skillet, a grill pan, a Dutch oven, or a griddle, Blacklock's craftsmanship ensures generations of use. Find Blacklock cookware online at lodgecastiron.com or at your favorite local cookware store. For Lodge's support of great meals and good cooks this holiday season, and also their ongoing support of this podcast. We thank them.
3: So, before the break, we traveled back in time to 1884, when New Orleans hosted the World Cotton Centennial. Advertisers, who were not based in the city, put out pamphlets, cookbooks, and literature about the city. And a lot of that material focused on how exotic and historic New Orleans was. And they did that by emphasizing the culture of Black and Creole people who worked and lived in the city, including street vendors, who sang and joked and called out about the wares they were hawking. But I wondered, do those same dynamics play out today? I spoke with Amy Stelly to discuss this. Amy is an urban designer. She also grew up in New Orleans, in a neighborhood called Treme,
5: So I live in the house that I grew up in, and it's a wonderful turn of the century uh, arts and crafts kind of vernacular house. My dad was a classical musician, and he taught piano and violin and voice to neighborhood kids. So when I was a kid, every Saturday, you'd hear opera coming from the house, and we were known in the neighborhood as the house with the opera. Because my dad would turn it up, and as you walked down the street, you might hear Carmen or La Traviata or uh, whatever actually was on the Metropolitan Opera. So I grew up every Saturday listening to
3: opera. For the record, Carmen, yep, she's a street vendor too. She sold cigarettes. Amy remembers street food vendors visiting her neighborhood when she was a little girl.
5: I even think some had like... uh, horse-drawn carriages at a time. This is when I was really small. But we would often, you know, listen for the guy to come down the street saying, watermelon, tomato, get your squash right here. And you'd listen for that. And then you'd go out and you'd buy whatever your family wanted.
3: Today, there are really only a handful of street food vendors around town. Typically, they can be found selling tamales or other late-night eats outside of bars. Vendors don't circulate through neighborhoods in the French Quarter in quite the same way. And basic produce is usually cheaper to buy at the grocery store. However, there are still special occasions where vendors might emerge, like second lines. Pre-pandemic, we had second-line Sundays. Which are these parades typically hosted by Black social aid and pleasure clubs that feature brass bands and dancers and costumes. It's,
5: um, in a way, kind of a mini Mardi Gras, without the beads.
3: (laughs) When Um, Amy steps out for Second Lines, she notices the street vendors coming out again. And it feels like a continuation of the same traditions that shaped her neighborhood when she was a little girl.
5: On Sundays, people start gathering for the Second Lines early in the afternoon, so you'll see vendors pull up barbecue carts and um, guys who are selling shots out of coolers, they get in position, people were are selling water uh, or beer or whatever, they'll sort of position themselves along the second line route um, so that they can capture a lot of sales. So the first thing you see set up is the food, actually, on second line Sunday. And then slowly but surely, people will start to congregate and walk up and down the streets.
3: Treme, Amy's neighborhood, is intersected by this large street called Claiborne Avenue, which interstate 10 barrels right over. This interstate, like so many across the South, cut apart her walkable, thriving neighborhood full of Black families and businesses when it was erected in 1968. Amy says that it's her life's work to dismantle the highway, which she calls a monument to racism. But she also recognizes that the highway's overpass created a special covered area on Claiborne Avenue, which is now the setting for some street vending today.
5: Street life is everything in New Orleans because we live in the streets. So my interpretation is that the culture never stopped. The highway changed it. The highway made the street less desirable, but... Black people in New Orleans continued to claim that space. So Claiborne became the mecca, the heartbeat of Black New Orleans.
3: If street vendors feel spare around New Orleans, it may be because of decisions like erecting the highway, which displaced Black and working-class communities. It also may be because of policies that criminalize the informal economy that so many working immigrant communities and communities of color rely on for selling and buying goods and services. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the city government announced it would be cracking down on so-called illegal food vendors across New Orleans, including the street vendors of Second Lines. But still, in spite of all of this, the vibrant public street life of Black New Orleanians persists. And this very same resilient, flamboyant street culture of Black New Orleanians is exactly what the tourism powers that be of New Orleans commodify today in order to lure tourists to the city.
4: Street vendors are often these signposts for authenticity, especially when a writer or a playwright or a director, you know, they want to somehow establish the local culture. They want to establish the scene.
3: That's Ashley Rose Young again. She's the historian at the Smithsonian who studies street food and public culture.
4: And it, and it really doesn't do justice to what I think we're trying to talk about, which is the much more complex, much more nuanced stories of resilience and tenacity and innovation that street vendors uh, bring to the table. So it's not just a way of getting food. It's, it, it's more symbolic of interconnectivity and, and the role of, of Black New Orleanians in particular in, in provisioning the city and the, how they've been doing that for generations and generations.
3: I asked Amy about this. What does it mean to sell New Orleans as a tourist destination through the selling of this informal street culture? What does it mean to sell the second line, to peddle souvenir keychains of a vendor's song, to commodify this Black culture so essential to the city? And who exactly benefits from that?
5: It's interesting that you use the word commodification because I was thinking of that exactly. And there are a lot of conversations um, that surround that issue. But we've added to the selling of New Orleans as a place of beautiful architecture and food. We've added to that. You can see a second line. You can have a second line for your wedding or you can have Indians come and and parade at your convention. And uh, so it has been, you know, very much commodified. And unfortunately, the people who have created that culture don't really see the benefits, um, the economic benefits of it. I guess the moral of that story is we we do have to watch and, and carefully place culture. We have to carefully place where it occurs how it occurs how people see it how people enjoy it so it doesn't come off as an entity you know that that can be commodified uh and it also shows how the people of new orleans black people in particular have made lemonade out of lemons um, because now these things have a lot of value and they've become assets so i When you think of the dynamics and and how we create and how we plan for the future, I think we have to be mindful of how we frame culture and how we frame street life and everything that makes New Orleans New Orleans. Because if we do it incorrectly, it becomes buffoonery and then that doesn't do us any good. You know, we become a mockery of ourselves.
2: Gravy was reported and produced by Katie Jane Fernelius, a journalist and radio producer based in New Orleans. Her work interrogates institutions and the stories they tell.
1: We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music.
2: The publisher for Gravy and all other SFA media is Mary Beth Lassiter. Visit
1: southernfoodways.org
2: to make a donation your dollars fund our good work and while you've got your phone in your hand download our sfa stories app underwritten by tabasco and let sfa be your guide as you explore the south i'm sarah camp milam i'm melissa hall excited to lap up another episode of gravy
1: tell a friend and pass the gravy boat there's plenty to go around